Well, good morning again. If you'll take your Bibles and you'll open those up to the book of Romans and look at chapter 4, I'm going to be reading uh, from Romans 4, and we're covering just a few verses there, uh, picking up at verse 18 and going down uh, there through verse 22. And we'll read that uh, in just a moment, but I'll give you time uh, to get over to that. We've been going through this book and realizing that um, uh, there are... Uh, things worth slowing down for, and in particular, Romans chapter 4 is one of those, as we look especially at today, the nature of faith which justifies. And um, I've held off on the last three verses because um, in my preparations, as I began to look at that section, I noticed in verse 22 that uh, those three verses following... Uh, Luther speaks about that the whole of Christianity is encompassed in those three verses. And I, I thought I better slow down and really study that longer. Um, so we're going to hold off on those three and endeavor to cover these uh, few verses here, beginning in verse 18. We pick up, uh, God's holy word says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, and so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the Word of God for the people of God, for the glory of God. Amen. So, as we look at this, I've titled it The Nature of Faith Which Justifies. And the summary of the matter is that the problem of a hopeless and unstable and a powerless world is met by the power of God's justification in the nature of a faith that is purely, 100%, absolutely, a gift that comes down from heaven. When we look at the nature of faith, it um, came to me this week, and you could call happenstance, but we know nothing is, is by chance. And I decided to pick back up the confessions uh, by Augustine. And... Augustine, as you know, is famous for a statement about his heart finding rest in God. And you'll, you'll find that phrase to be in this quote. But I want to read the, the larger portion of where that comes from. It's in the first book of the Confessions of Augustine. And just a couple paragraphs there. It says, You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. And great is your power and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you, a human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And here's, of course, the most famous quote. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
Grant me, Lord, to know and understand which comes first to call upon you or to praise you, or whether knowing you precedes calling upon you. But who calls upon you when he does not know you? For an ignorant person might call upon someone else instead of the right one. But surely you may be called upon in prayer that you may be known. Yet how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe without a preacher? They will praise the Lord who seek for him. In seeking him, they find him. And in finding him, they will praise him. Lord, I would seek you. Calling upon you and calling upon you is an act of believing in you. You have been preached to us. My faith, Lord, calls upon you. It is your gift to me. You breathed it into me by the humanity of your son, by the ministry of your preacher. And if you didn't notice what I'm bringing out, my faith, Lord, calls upon you. And he says, it is your gift to me. And when we understand that faith is God's gift to us, then there are two things that happen immediately. One, we begin to see that faith is not something that we produce or that we muster up by our own strength and willpower. And secondly, we look at others differently because we begin to see that in and of themselves, they cannot help themselves. The statement of God helps those who help themselves is a false one because he actually helps those who are unable to help themselves. They lack the ability to do anything of spiritual good. Some, um, elsewhere in the, in the confessions, he speaks about um, that good works are not good by virtue of the fact that the will the will, the desire to do those things is, is not present. Meaning, <clears throat> if, you're, if you're doing something and you don't really enjoy doing it, then how in the world is it good? If, if people come and they go through the motions of worship, but yet they don't love God, how is that good? If they go to do something good for someone, but yet they really hate doing it, how is that good? And that brings to bear the fact that God must do a work in our hearts through what theologians call regeneration. The new birth. Where man is, is made new from the heart. And grace always works from the inside out. And Augustine was a, a tool and a catalyst to Luther. As Luther read Augustine, he began to see the truths that Augustine had achieved in his studies were truths that would give birth to the Reformation. And the Reformation was a result of regeneration in a man named Luther. Because you can't have reform until people are made new. So <clears throat> it's, it's a futile error to say, take on the theology that is good if the heart is not good. And the nature of faith demands that we see it as a gift so that we might foremost uh, look to Christ and be saved by His grace. And two, that we might not look down on others 
who are totally incapable of that, but we might pray and labor and live in such a way that they might see the glory of the Lord and God might in His mercy awaken them through those humble means. We know faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ, and Augustine agrees with that as we heard. For he said, how shall we hear without a preacher? And he said, we have heard, and God has brought <clears throat> the preaching of the Word to him. Of course, it didn't, <clears throat> it didn't hurt that Augustine had a mother who prayed for him. So you see these basic means of how do people, how do people come to Christ unless it is completely a gift from God? Now we know that quite clearly, but we want to know it functionally. We want to know it in such a way so that we benefit week in and week out from the proclaimed word. For that's why Paul's writing. He's writing in order to prepare a body to receive him and for him also to receive them as they gather together to strengthen each other in the faith. So it's not primarily, it's not a, a, a van an evangelistic effort here it is an effort to strengthen the existing church by the gospel the gospel is for the people of god it is for them to be strengthened both the preacher and the congregation now <clears throat> the center of what we see here in this text if you take verse 18 and you look down through 22 i'd like you to observe that the center of this text is that which is uh, quite a pessimistic statement. It is that he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That's the center of the text. That's what um, I believe Paul would have us see stirring up the rest of the statements he's making in these few verses is that faith doesn't ignore the facts. There, there's teaching out there that would have you believe that faith would look, um, not look at the facts before, before you. But here we have the nature of faith actually looks at the facts that are very difficult to face. Faith actually looks at those, but it looks at God. It looks at the power of God. It looks at the attributes of God. And so it doesn't ignore the facts. The glory of faith is that this gift is able to face the facts with a smile. Is able to face the future with laughter. Is able to face the difficulties with hope, is able to face a world that doesn't keep His promises with a trust that God always does, is able to have assurance when there's a sense of fragility present throughout the world. Faith faces the difficulties that are before the person, but does so by also looking at God. And, of course, we could go to Hebrews 11 and say, okay, there's, there's a picture of faith. But this here really, uh, I wouldn't say competes with Hebrews 11. It complements Hebrews 11 
as we see many of the statements there. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he, he who pleased God believes that he exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. And we see that. We see Abraham mentioned there along with many of the other uh, saints of old. Now, the idea here is that the world is in a hopeless condition. The world's in an unstable condition. The world's in a powerless condition, just like the body of Abraham and Sarah stood incapable of producing the seed that would ultimately become the Messiah down the road. They didn't ignore that. When God came to them with the promise, they didn't ignore it. They didn't look away from the fact that they were completely incapable of producing anything saving. It's this occasion, not, not, the, not an occasion of, of, of giving faith, I mean, strengthening faith here. It's this occasion where faith was actually given. This is justifying faith. This is the beginning of the Christian life. This is the beginning of life for Abraham. And why would Paul want to make sure his readers understood this before he came so they could be strengthened? And the reason I believe is this, is because how in the world can a church be strengthened that's not first regenerate? A lot of times we're blaming the, the lack of, of just the romance and the beauty and the glory and the joy that happens among God's people when the Word of God is proclaimed and people are fed by the Word of God. We, we blame when people are lackadaisical to it or numb to it or hardened to it or not excited about it. We blame it on all the wrong things. Instead, we need to blame it on the very fact that there are people that don't know Christ in the churches. And they can't hear. And they can't see. And they can't enjoy. Why? Because their hearts are still stone. We shouldn't expect stony hearts that have not been enlivened to the lyrics and the melody of the gospel to be excited about that gospel. But we can be sure and certain that anywhere God has worked in the heart of a people, their hearts will soar at the mention of their Lord and of His glories and of His works and His mighty deeds. They will be to them an ointment for their soul and they will be to them stability in times of instability and they will be for them power in the times of powerlessness. They'll be for them trust in the midst of times when it seems we can trust none because their hearts are new. They're alive. No longer dead in their sins. No longer following the prince of the power of the air. They're delighted in God. And the only one who receives the credit for that by the basis of Abraham's deep look in the very fact he could do nothing is God alone. And we come to worship the Lord. And foremost, we worship Him in the proclamation of His Word. The hope of the Abraham kind, we could put it this way, is pinned against the hope of the humankind. The hope of the, of the humankind is a hope that simply wishes. But the hope of the Abraham kind is solid 
and secure. I've put down three statements I want to just use to guide us. One, faith by definition in nature meant hoping in God's promise of Jesus despite the present and sad reality of life. The sad reality was no ability existed in Abraham and Sarah. Faith meant hoping in God's promise of Jesus in spite of that. Verses 18 and 19 say, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as death since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I wrote down a hymn uh, by Charles Wesley. We've sung quite a bit of him lately, and I found this one. It, it just captures the statement here in the text. In hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe, faith, mighty faith, the promises, and looks to that alone laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. That is the point of those two verses. Wesley nails it in the midst of a lyrical poem. And so you have hope, and then you have human hope. You have divine hope, and then you have human hope. You have hope of the Abraham kind, and you have hope of the human kind. And hope of the Abraham kind is pinned against Hope of the humankind and hope of the Abraham kind triumphs over hope of the humankind. And what makes the difference? What makes the difference? How is that even possible? It is possible by these words, as he has been told. So it is, Augustine said, How can I hear unless someone preached to me? And not just preached anything, but the Word of God. The living, active, powerful Word of God brings men to life. As he has been told, it is like the shepherds who received the message from the angels in Luke chapter 2. And what did they do? They went out and they shared as it had been told them. The Word made the difference. And the Word makes the difference in our lives. The Word has power and ability that by the virtue of the Spirit of God, He can raise men to life, but it is not in ourselves. It brings hope to the hopeless. And faith came through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Hope was made alive against the human hope by the Word of God. Faith hopes in God's Word promise despite the present reality of life. And so, just stop for a moment of application having a reality in life that you face that is absolutely dismal, depressing, and absolutely hopeless in the terms of humanity. It's not something we turn away from looking at. It's not something we're ignoring. It's not something that's going to be fixed by positive thinking. It's something that we can face only with the divine hope that comes by faith born by the Word of God. The faith here is something that, as Lloyd-Jones says, is an achievement. 
These are achievements of faith, not achievements of Abraham. They are achievements of faith in Abraham's life. And faith, when it is present in the believer's life, will achieve things. And faith here achieves a great triumph in the sense that faith here causes this man, in spite of the dismal reality of life, to believe what God has told him. And there, there are several fruits of this. The first, or levels of it. The first level is that he would be the father of many nations. Physically speaking, we see out of Abraham, if you go back into the promise in Genesis 15, you see this um, immediate uh, explosion of offspring that are named, that are, are, are there, that are prophesied, that would come from Abraham. God has promised that Abraham will be the father of many nations. And if you read through the second half of Genesis from 12 to, to 50, you see the numerous uh, group of not only the Jews, but you see the nations being birthed. You see the beginnings. You see the generations. And Abraham believed that would happen. He didn't see all that, right? But he believed because it was given to him. It achieved something in his life. So he would be the father of many nations. He believed that. Second, second he believed he believed in such a way that he himself would have to have a child. He would have to give birth. They would have to have a child. Abraham and Sarah would have to have a child. And that child would be Isaac. But that child was not there yet. That child was not given yet. That child was not in existence yet. And Abraham had to believe. Here God is promising him to be the father of many nations. And he doesn't have a single um, a single heir that rightfully can fulfill that. And he believed that that one will be given. Most importantly, as Gen- uh, Galatians 3.16 indicates, the real hope of the promise was he believed that there would be one offspring for its singular that was ultimately Christ. He believed that. And we could add another, and that is, in that statement that so shall your offspring be, he also would be believing that spiritually, as we have learned, the spiritual offspring that comes from him being a father of the faith, that spiritual offspring will be so numerous that you could not count it. If you remember, he took Abraham out and said, look at the stars of the sky. Can you count them? Can you number them? The sand on the seashore, can you number them? So shall your descendants be. And he believed that. And that's not natural. That's supernatural. Especially when you face the fact that there's absolutely no ability humanly possible for that to happen. So he had this type of divine hope. He, he believed that the nations that would come from him will be brought by the one who would die for him. He rejoiced to see Jesus' day and was glad because Jesus is the promise and the fulfillment of everything that he hoped for. The son would ask for the nations 
as an inheritance, Psalm 2 says. Abraham was believing God's promise of that one who would ask for that inheritance. Faith hopes against human hope to achieve saving faith in the life of Abraham and all God's people. In sum, it's this. Abraham is justified, declared righteous, and forgiven all his sins by virtue of this faith that's given to him to hope this way. It's absolutely impossible with man, but there's nothing too difficult, as it was said to Abraham and to Sarah, nothing too difficult for God. The same thing that's spoken to Abraham and Sarah is fast-forwarded. When you read the Incarnation, it is spoken to those in the very birth narrative of the Incarnation, which also we've read What did Augustine quote there? He's speaking about he gave that faith in the humanity, the incarnation of his son. And by virtue, through the preaching of his word and all the way then he was saying by his angel, he said, nothing's too difficult for the Lord. Well, that's something that only God can do in a heart to begin believing that. It's not something you or I can muster up. It's something that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, He does and He will do because we know God before all time had chosen people and He sent His Son to die for those people. And as He died for those people, He purchased their faith. He achieved everything needful and necessary for the gift of faith that you experience, that I experience, that I, I enjoy, that you enjoy to be given to us. And we have no, no room to boast in anything except what Christ has done. The second thing is that faith meant glorifying God, not just hoping in God, but glorifying God in spite of the present and sad, unstable circumstances in life. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Notice here the word waver. If you remember in the book of James we studied, it says that he who comes to God must, must uh, ask with faith. The one who, who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not think he'll receive anything of the Lord. Faith by its nature is not unstable. The world that we live in is unstable until faith enters that world through God's people to bring the stability and the strength that it so desperately needs. The world longs for what we have in Christ, but the terms of receiving that is an admittance of our total incapability to save ourselves. No person could come to God and and, and think that he has a little bit. No person can doubt about this or waver about this. It is, it is a complete, absolute dependence and trust in God alone that by nature is saving faith, justifying faith. Faith that makes the man or woman new in God. It is based on the doctrine of simplicity, for God cannot be broken into parts. He is one God, and you cannot break His attributes into part. Parts, he is complete. 
He is whole. And therefore, the only hope for humanity to be whole is to have a God who is complete and whole and who cannot be separated. The faith that would strengthen Abraham has to be first a faith by nature that is strong. And the cause of strong faith is a focus on a true God. Again, remember what I said from the text. He did not ignore the facts. But he went beyond them. He went beyond the facts to God. That's the difference. We may look at the facts. We may see them as they are. We may see them. We will see them more clearly having eyes to see. But we don't stop at the facts. Faith looks to God. It goes beyond the facts. It goes to the Lord. And it it contemplates God. For example, you can imagine Abraham would have thought about God's eternality. He didn't stop looking at his his limited um, ability in life and all those things. He had to believe something that would happen beyond his physical years. And what would help him? But God's eternality. God has always existed, will always exist, is outside of time. And when you know that God is eternal, you certainly can trust that this eternal God is able to give everything He's promised, even beyond your life. Life can't be looked at just simply as as to what we will accomplish by our flesh here. It has to know that what is done here matters and counts beyond our limited time in the flesh. And Abraham, again, he rejoiced to see the day of Christ beyond his physical days and was glad. He not only would contemplate the eternality of God, but he would contemplate the infinity of God. There is uh, a magnificence to the fact that God is infinite. Augustine comprehends, tries to comprehend this in the uh, confessions when he's saying that, where are you, God? You're everywhere. You're, you're in me. I'm in you. I mean, there's, you don't have life without God. God has to be present in a world that's lifeless for there to be even life. People, humanity, lost and saved everywhere. The only reason we live, move, and have our being is because, as Paul quoted of even the pagans, is because God exists. Again, the knowledge of that doesn't bring salvation. It is the belief, the love, the delight, the trust, the joy in God that has been given birth by the Spirit and the Word of God by virtue of His grace from above that saves a man. But it is a fact that no human being could even breathe a single breath unless God is, and we could go to the next attribute, omnipresent everywhere. And he would have complimented, uh, contemplated that. He would have contemplated his omniscience because God knows all things. Abraham, who doesn't know all things, was able to trust the God who does know all things. And you think about when people get to their most hopeless state, and you can almost see it in their hopeless eyes, how 
They've lost the hope. And they don't know where to turn. And they, they, they see that it's limited ability. They can't see beyond their own circumstances how extremely hopeful it is to present a God to them or to contemplate a God ourselves who is completely omniscient, that knows all things. Because we don't know. He knows for the end from the beginning. And so it would be wise to consult the God who is completely all-wise and omniscient. Then, he would, have, he would have contemplated, of course, many other things, but here in the text we see very clearly one of the things he contemplated that helped him most was the omnipotence of God. All-powerful. He is able to perform what He promised. It's one thing for me and you to promise each other something that we, we may or may not fulfill, but we're talking about God. And when you know God is omnipotent he is all-powerful and able to perform anything he promises it makes all the difference and he believed in this God who was omnipotent this is the type of faith that doesn't simply wish to have a justified life this is the faith that will that actually comes by the gift of God and it accomplishes it Abraham didn't just simply uh, think about these things he believed these things with the marrow of his spiritual bones. Because he had a new heart. And that new heart was pumping new spiritual blood through his veins. And the only place he could have got that from was from above. It's not a natural thing. Faith hopes in the word of Christ. Hopes against human hope. It, It doesn't waver. Faith is strong. Faith is certain. Faith is confident. There's a lot of controversy about that, but, but Calvin in particular would define faith in the sense of an absolute certainty. There's certainly a measure given out to people in regards to that. That's why you see in the Bible sometimes it says, oh, you have little faith, right? What, why does that even exist? Well, let's take Peter's, Peter's great incident, for example. You remember when he, he uh, said, if it's you, Lord command me to come out to you on the water. And it says there that Peter walked on the water with Jesus. But then it says as the circumstances around him began to uh, become more turbulent, he began to look at those. He turned his eyes away from Christ. And he began to sink and he cries out, Save me, Lord. What do we learn there? We learn the similar lesson here is that the circumstances are faced by Peter, he knows that apart from God, he cannot possibly come to the Lord. If that is the Lord and he commands him to come, he commands what he wills and wills what he commands, then he walks out on that water, but instead of keeping his eyes focused on Christ, he begins to go back to focusing on the circumstances and saints. So it is with us that once we have been regenerated and justified, the greatest fight in our lives is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Our sanctification rests on continuing to look to Christ beyond the circumstances. It's vital. If you're going to have stability in an unstable world, that trust and focus on Christ has to be the constant effort 
of your eyes in this life. If you're going to have hope in the midst of a hopeless world, the constant focus must be trusting and hoping in the word of God, which is true. But lastly, faith meant Faith meant beyond this a spiritual assurance that God was able to do what he promised in this sad world of broken promises. Verse 21 and 22. Notice the words, fully convinced. Fully convinced. Oh, I missed something here. Notice, go back up verse 20. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As he gave glory to God. Um, so let me just back up and say this about the whole Peter incident, right? Uh, let's say it about Abraham. Is that to glorify God, right? To glorify God is going to strengthen your faith. Some people translate by, he was strengthened by his faith here. And that could be the case. But the text, I think, reads plainly. As he gave glory to God, in other words, as he's focusing on God in Christ, Faith is strengthened. There's no wavering happening when your eyes are focused on the Savior. The wavering happens when your faith is focused on a circumstance. And again, we're not saying don't look at the circumstance. We're saying look beyond it. Look above it. God gives you eyes to see. Look there to Christ. Okay, didn't want to miss that. The next verse. Fully convinced, there's your assurance that God was able, there's omnipotence, to do what He promised. And notice the last verse, which really keys us into what Paul's saying. This is why. This is the reason why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith is counted to him as righteousness, at least in this last point of what Paul's making here in the text, because he is fully convinced that God is able to do this. This faith achieves <clears throat> assurance. And <clears throat> there are certain levels of assurance, right, that we have in life. Sometimes our, our assurance can wane in those things. But he had full assurance in the matter of these things. He was fully convinced. And the fullness of this, this assurance foremost comes as we've said before, by knowing God. The greatest reason that men and women would lack assurance in the church, to feel and know that they are His, that they are adopted, that they belong to Him, that He is their Father, is going to be this very issue of lack of the knowledge of God. Because as you grow in your knowledge of God, you will grow in your assurance and certainty of the faith. And, but that's, that's not the, the only thing to keep. There's a two-pronged thing here about assurance. One, it is you're knowing God. And second, you're obeying God. You're knowing God and you're obeying God. Rarely does humanity in the church ever experience assurance by simply knowing the theory of who God is. It is when they begin to take him at his word. 
It's when they begin to practice and apply the Scriptures. And in the midst of that, they're never disappointed. Because it is in the midst of a faith that trusts that they realize more more in tune with the Scripture. They realize He indeed is our Father. Rarely do people doubt their salvation as they're running to the hospital to visit a friend or to tend to a need or to pray with another brother or sister in the Lord. They're not sitting there doubting their salvation at those moments. They doubt their salvation in the midst of times when they're alone and focused on themselves and their circumstances and find themselves drifting away from knowing God and obeying God. The key to full assurance is going to be getting to know God more and more and taking Him at His word in application. So we see a seal, if you will, on His life of spiritual power. And He's saying, here's why. Here's why this section... He was justified. Why was he justified? He was justified, we learned, foremost, because he hoped in God's promise of Jesus despite the present sad reality of life. He was justified, second, because in spite of the present and sad, unstable circumstances, he glorified God. He looked beyond them to God And he magnified God over the circumstances and that faith also meant the full assurance here. God was able. So why was he justified? Because faith. I misspoke in that previous point. It's faith, not Abraham. It's the faith in Abraham that glorified God. It's the faith that meant full assurance that God was able to do. And this faith became personal by virtue that Abraham received it, exercised it. It is a grace. What is a grace? A grace is something that must come 100% from God from above, but be exercised by you and me. In other words, God doesn't believe for you. You must believe. You must trust. It's a gift, though, meaning At the end of the day, you're not going to be saying, look what I did. Look how smart I am. Look how strong I am. If everyone would be like me, then they would be Christian. No, that's not faith. Faith is understood as a 100% gift from God. When you do trust, the only thing you can say is that God alone be the glory. And so, back to Wesley's hymn. In hope against all human hope, self-desperate I believe. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone and laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. That's the nature of faith. A gift from above, like Augustine said, it came from God. It's been given to us. Like Wesley said, it achieved something. Like Paul said, it achieved these three things. It hoped. It glorified. It was assured with steadfastness in God. Oh, the glory 
of faith. Isn't it wonderful? This gift that God has given us. May you and may I give thanks to God throughout this day for the gift of God's mighty faith. Let us stand together for prayer. Our Father, thank you for this tremendous gift. It is a gift that perhaps there will be someone even here today who has heard it and has believed and trusted you by your magnificent grace through the means of the preaching of the gospel of our Lord and your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that if there is such a one here today, that they will look and cling and hope and glorify and be assured that they're your son or daughter, that they belong to you now. And for those who already believe that their faith will be so encouraged by the reminder that nothing in our hands we bring but only only to the cross we can cling even now. It is absolutely a gift. It, it reminds us, Father, to look beyond our circumstance to You, Lord, to glorify You, to magnify You above the circumstances, to trust You when things seem, and not just seem, when things are in reality not well. Help us look beyond those things to You, God. And then help us, Father. Help us to experience the fullness of Your assurance that this faith achieves. Your faith has always been successful. And we know, Father, if we are going to be successful, we need to have this type of faith. So when we confess today, Father, we believe with a with that one in the Scriptures, we believe, help our unbelief. For we stand ready for Your mercy to give it. And we ask all these things before You in the mighty, powerful name of our Lord. And now, Father, we come to the table. And we ask You, Father, that these elements that represent what Christ has most visibly done in His body of His flesh, He died for our sins, he bled to atone for us. He finished the work that You sent Him to do. And the covenant was sealed. And Lord, You've given everything needful and necessary. You've accomplished salvation for sinners who will trust in You, who You chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. And as we come to this table and we administer this ordinance that has been entrusted to Your church to mark out Your people, in this place. May we take of it with faith and be strengthened thereby. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May you come.